Hi, this is Elliot, host of Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and check out our Facebook page for all of the latest updates. If I could ask a small favour, please could you subscribe and review our show on iTunes. By doing this, you'll be helping us reach a wider audience and have a greater impact by challenging perceptions and encouraging people to live a more conscious life. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves, and my guest today is Professor Bill Buchanan, OBE. Professor Buchanan is a Scottish computer scientist who leads the Centre for Distributed Computing and Security at Edinburgh Napier University and the Cyber Academy. You're a fellow of the BCS and the IET and have published 28 academic books and over 200 research papers. As well as regular television and radio appearances, you've been involved in a wide range of innovation and enterprise activities, including three successful spin-out companies and a raft of awards for teaching, research and innovation. Additionally, you were awarded an OBE in the 2017 Honours List for Services to Cybersecurity. Absolutely incredible. Bill, it's a tremendous honour to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, absolutely welcome. So it would be super if we could start at the the sort of the beginning, if you like, um, about you know where you kind of grew up, what your background was like, and I suppose maybe what you were kind of like growing up. Uh, well, I'm a Falkirk bearing, a yeah. Falkirk bearing, uh, and uh, I, I was born in the 1960s. A great generation, I think, uh, caused a lot of problems, uh, <laughs> but have done a lot, lot of good uh, too. Uh, I grew up in, in an area uh, near Victoria Park in, in Falkirk. I had a very happy life there. Uh, lots of kids around at, at that time. We played outdoors all, all the time, played football <coughs> and, and so on. And uh, uh, then I moved to Hall Glen and it's an area uh, on the outskirts of, uh, of Falkirk. Mm-hmm. I attended Graham High School uh, at the time, and then uh, my father and my grandfather were both electricians, mm-hmm. so it just seemed the natural thing uh, to be able to move into electrical engineering. I remember my dad showed me how to wire uh, a, a plug. I, I really? do remember him uh, showing me how to, to bear the wires, and at one time there wasn't a little plastic bit on the plug sockets at that time for the pins. It showed me how to wire uh, uh, an ad hoc electrical connection onto the plug and 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 push it push it in. Mm-hmm. It's not really recommended uh, these days, but I have the sight of lots of plug sockets really fitted into a single lots of sources electrical sources fitted into a single socket. So I, uh, I just naturally, uh, moved into, uh, being an electrician. It just seemed to be the thing. At that time, university education, education in general really just stopped, uh, after, uh, a certain age. And, and there, there was no thoughts in the family that I would ever go to university or anybody in the family would, uh, would, would ever achieve that, 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 that type of level. Mm-hmm. So I went to work in the ICI in Grangemouth. It isn't there anymore. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was a lovely little uh, dye works. They made arcanic uh, dyes. 
And the strange thing about being uh, at the ICI, apart from moving around from, as they called this, from shed to shed, <laughs> uh, the shed was, was where they made the different types of dyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could actually tell where someone worked because of the colour of their face and the colour of their overalls. Monastrals was green. So if someone had a green face, they worked in monastrals. If they had a blue face, then they worked in uh, in primadines. So that was interesting because uh, you would sit down and, and the tradesmen at the time would sit and talk to you about their whole life and their thoughts and dreams uh, and, and, and so on. But I think at that time, uh, really, I became aware that there was other things that were interesting uh, and the possibilities were there. And I could only see that being an electrician would would really constrain my uh, world and, and <laughs> what I could look into. And then I saw this little plastic device with three legs on it uh, called a transistor and at a base, a collector and an emitter. And they were quite big things at mm-hmm. the time. And they replaced things that were called valves, big um, uh, electronic devices about this size and used to see them in, in TVs. And the transistor was just wonderful, uh, the opportunity to, to, to learn and to be able to control systems through these transistors was just a new world to me. And in the place, they had they had the north site and the south site. The south site of the plant was the older type uh, uh, factory. That everything was really quite uh, manual in its in its setup. But in the north site, they had an amazing thing. It was quite clean, mm-hmm. and it was very much process driven automation. There was more electronics in that site. And they had this amazing thing called a computer. And the computer was run by these people with white coats. And they just seemed from a different world. So as an electrician, we uh, run the cables. We provided the supply. And then we provided the interface to the electronics. And then on the other side, there was this clean area, which had a computer and was run by these alien people <laughs> and it just seems such a wonderful uh, world uh, and and a new trade came along called an instrument artificer and it was these people who were responsible for creating the electronics and the control the, the electricians still had their role of uh, providing the power and the control and making sure the equipment was safety, safe but this new trade came along and they were responsible for controlling to make sure that the process actually worked correctly. And it just seemed an amazing new advancement. And I, I couldn't see, uh, as an electrician, how I could get into this new area of transistors and electronics. And computers just seemed way beyond anyone. I mean, this is, was for space alien <laughs> creatures who had white coats that were lab technicians uh, and probably the power of a computer, the com- those computers now mm-hmm. would be probably less than you would have in your fridge, for example, <laughs> a smart fridge. Uh, but it just seemed, it just seemed an amazing world. So I, I, <clears throat> I decided that I was going to leave and that I would go and study. Before then, 
I, I came through <coughs> to Edinburgh with a great with a great friend. Uh, we studied at college in Falkirk. We had a, a day release system for one year. We spent our time. This was when we had four years apprenticeships, mm-hmm. and for the first year we spent our time in college, uh, and we had such fun meeting new people from new backgrounds and so on. Uh, we had apprentices from the BP in Grangemouth. We had uh, uh, apprentices from Burroughs, which was a computer company in Cum- I'll say Cumbernauld or Cumbernauld. <laughs> yes. uh, and we were all fused together for one year and we really uh, made uh, great, great friends. Uh, after that, we had day release uh, where we'd go to college for one day a year. And I must admit, I wasn't <laughs> the most diligent of uh, of studiers. I was disruptive at school. Really? And I hate to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was always polite and I, I was never uh, nasty or evil in anything that, that I ever did. But I was a very disruptive force. <laughs> I couldn't be locked down really f- for anything. But I've I've always loved uh, codes and ciphers and yeah. and and maths and so on, but I didn't stick in probably as as much as I could have. So my myself and my friend came through uh, to Edinburgh, and it was the most wonderful place that I think I've ever saw in my life. Uh, I arrived, or we arrived in Edinburgh, probably in the coldest November day that you could ever imagine. You know how in Edinburgh that the coldness bites yeah. sometimes but the cold <laughs> i love edinburgh in, in the winter time and i think it's one of the best times but it really bites we're beside the sea which is great because you can pop down to the beach whenever you want wow <laughs> that's amazing mm-hmm. you can have any type of beach that you want a lovely beach a sheltered beach but it was probably the coldest day that that i think i've ever felt i walked up through waverley uh, steps up into Princess Street, and I saw this most amazing, fantastic landscape that I've never, I've never ever lost my love uh, of uh, of of Edinburgh, and it was biting cold, and you get hit by that wind <laughs> that just goes typically often east to west or west to east. The, the east to west is coming right off the sea. Mm-hmm. And you'll get hit by that blast and it takes your, your air away. I think they buffer it a little bit more. But the the majesticness and the it just I just fell head over heels with the city. It just and I've never I've never lost that that love of the of this beautiful cultured uh, city. So I fell head over heels and mm-hmm. I just knew that I, I had to come here mm. and live. And I think the city has really changed so much yeah. even since then. Mm-hmm. It has a, a gutsiness and a, a confidence in itself to really make a place in, 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 in the world. So I I came through to Edinburgh. I, I studied uh, at uh, at, at Napier to do a degree in communication engineering. It was just a step too far to do computer systems. <laughs> <laughs> so I did communication engineering and, and electronics. It was a five-year honours degree with, uh, with uh, a placement in the middle, which was excellent because you could actually see what real industry was like. Mm-hmm. Those two placements uh, in there. And 
and really opened up my, my, my eyes to, to the possibilities. We did analog electronics, but even in the time of studying the course, you could really see electronics developing towards integrated circuits, mm-hmm. towards digitization, away from analog uh, communications, radio waves, AM, FM, towards digital communications, and that whole industry uh, changed. And really the 70s and then the 80s, you could see every every single day there was something new that was coming along, something new for you to get into, something uh Interesting. So I studied the course, and and uh, teaching looked to be interesting. I was so inspired by some of the lecturers on on the course, all different in their approach, and I think that's what's good about academia. Mm-hmm. One lecturer does one thing, and another lecturer does another. Mm-hmm. But the kindness and and the support of uh, of some of the lecturers was just in, inspirational. I think. People will often look back to their teachers. For me, it was my biology teacher, really? <laughs> who was who was who we listened to every single word they say. I, I didn't end up studying biology, mm-hmm. but he made the subject interesting, and we listened intensely. Uh, he was open. He listened to questions and so on. So I think we can be inspired by our teachers. We can see what they do wrong, and we can see how they do things better, but. I think teaching is such a noble thing to do and to share knowledge, but also yeah. to learn as much from your pupils, mm. your your peers, uh, who become great <laughs> in their own way, and you share in that success. Yeah. You have done one thing that you didn't know about. You said one thing, and someone changes their whole career. might be for the worst, <laughs> or it might be for the better. But you you have a chance to influence uh, someone's uh, life. So teaching just seemed a natural thing for me to do. Uh, I, I enjoyed doing research. I enjoyed the freedom that an academic has to not be constrained in things, to really look into new areas, and and really never be ever be forced to be able to think in a certain way. Um, but but the wonder of just dealing with new students every year and some wonderful students and some not-so-wonderful students that become <laughs> great individuals and people is just an opportunity to meet a graduates that, that I knew 20 years ago and for them still to be speaking <laughs> to yeah. you and to respect what you've done is is just a, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, so that that's generally the, the way, and and I feel so so kind of privileged. I just hop on the forty five bus, <laughs> takes me ten minutes, and I'm walking in the shadow of John Napier. Uh, in my area, John Napier created logarithms. Uh, I think he's a rather forgotten son in Edinburgh, uh, but he created logarithms and uh, or discovered logarithms, and much of a lot of my work involves the breaking of yes. logarithms <laughs> or the, or protecting privacy and security using uh, logarithms have changed to discrete logarithms, but uh, they've moved on. So it's just a, a natural thing uh, for me. 
to do, and I just love uh, I, I love being in academia. Yeah, that's a fantastic introduction and, and very inspiring. Thank yeah. you. Um, one of the things that I think I find most fascinating is the fact that when you began your journey, the industry in which you operated in is probably in no way comparable to what it's like nowadays. That the you know the amount of transformation that's gone on in technology. How have you remained, I suppose, the the apex of the industry for that long in such a changing environment? Well, well, I think I was very lucky to start in electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a core of mathematics. I have core knowledge of understanding of things. I think uh, uh, employ an engineer or a mathematician and you'll be able to move them into lots of different areas. So I always had that core knowledge of understanding how a machine, a computer works right down to the silicon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I understood silicon transistors up into integrated circuits, up into processors, up into systems, up into communications. And that's the way we've generally looked at the internet with these levels of abstraction and it's knowing at what level to be able to look at something and then to see it at that at that abstraction level is something uh, that they've always been able to do. And, and it's really to zoom in or to zoom out, but to know if you have a fault with your computer, then it's unlikely to be the electrical wires or the connector that you're using that's most likely that you haven't set up your IP address. So you look at it in terms of a network connection. Mm-hmm. Or if your software isn't working and you can't connect to social media, there's a very good chance it's to do with your password and, and working at the service layer. But sometimes you need to get down into that transistor layer or the circuits and so on. So I think I had a very good uh, core knowledge of understanding of systems and I, I'm always drawing diagrams for my students. We draw diagrams, we do, we point at things and we try and abstract and when I give lectures you'll find when I talk about Bob and Alice and Eve who are really important people in security, <laughs> I draw them. So I'm a very abstract <laughs> I'm not an artist like my wife or my, 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 one of my sons, but I do respect what they do. And I love that bridge between art and science. I think the two of them, when they work together, they are just amazing. And I think the crossover is, is schematics and, and diagrams and abstraction, uh, and really trying to bring new viewpoints because I, I, I write lots of words, but most of the words that I write have a diagram because more and more increasingly we're looking on the internet at diagrams and one picture paints. Uh, <laughs> one one picture is better than, than many, many words. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've generally evolved and I, I think the core principles have always been the same in computing. <clears throat> we still use what's called von, von Neumann's architecture. It sounds boring, <laughs> but a guy called von Neumann created this architecture for computers and we've basically stuck with it. Intel created the first processor and we've basically stuck with it. So you actually find very little is, is new. Uh, it's just it's just different in the way we use it. The one thing that's changed is that we've moved from a geek area. <laughs> so to get into the internet and computers, you had to be a geek. You had to <laughs> learn a basic or C++ or something like that. And it was our domain and, and, and it was the barrier towards it. So in healthcare, 
we were always faced with the problem, well, my mum won't use a computer. She can't log in. You can't expect her to manage her health record and things. And then the iPad came along and that argument evaporated. My mum is the best advocate of the iPad that you'll find anywhere on the planet. I gave her an <laughs> iPad when we went on a flight to the US once and she's never... <laughs> it's, it's probably the one thing that she wouldn't want to ever ever lose. <clears throat> so that barrier of technology has been really broken down and I think that's a great thing in the, the way that we now live our lives. There are a lot of bad things on the internet, a lot of evil, a lot of crime and horrible things but my goodness it's creating a new world which is quite wonderful that doesn't respect boundaries <laughs> mm -hmm. and borders and and uh, legislation and laws and and clamping down on 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 people's ideas yeah. and so on so it is a platform for individuals to say how they feel sometimes that isn't very nice but from the majority it is a way for them to keep in contact with people to share friends and it's really we're building a new world within mm -hmm. within the space so generally <laughs> generally I think the important thing in computer science is always to be able to learn. Uh, I have a very strong coding background. I love coding and I would never want to leave that. One thing I was worried about when I was an electrician is that what happened if I became a charge hand or a foreman or I moved into management, I would lose my technical skills. And to lose your technical skills to me is is that you've actually lost the thing that makes you special. I can create an artist paints a picture, mm -hmm. I can write a Python program, and, and to me that is creating in the same way, and then I document it, and then I lecture on it, and it's an artifact. So I, I as a geek, create, <laughs> and it's different uh, uh, from it, but it's my opportunity to, to be able to to do things, to contribute. I, I don't oh. see any point in repeating what everyone else has said about something. Uh, there is a lot said on the internet, and if people want to read a Wikipedia page, then it's fine. It doesn't have a soul and a heart and a passion. Mm -hmm. What I do is I, I present on things that I love and I, I really enjoy, and, and I, I hope when my students... Uh, get involved in the subjects, they also can see that there's a passion there and just not watching the clock. I, I do want to, to learn from them and, and to learn new new things and, and, and to, to keep uh, evolving. So the internet really has changed so, so much and the cloud is probably the greatest invention ever. Do you uh, think so? Transistor, wheel, car... The clouds. Uh, I mean, really, we're just at the start. This is just the first baby steps. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the data that was produced on the internet was just produced in the, the last couple of years. And it's just a little tiny. We'll be able to document every single minute of our lives. That's scary. Uh, but uh, when a baby is born, uh, we take pictures, we, we send on WhatsApp, we share with our friends now. Mm -hmm. We, we, we're not sharing possibly as much on Facebook and telling the world and so on. We in WhatsApp allows us to say these are our friends and these are people we trust 
and we communicate uh, in a way that has been difficult in, in the past. And we could photograph and document virtually how we felt on a rainy Tuesday in August in <laughs> 2016, how depressed we were, what we searched for in Google. It's a scary world, but you can't you can't opt out. It's it's it is our world now, and and it become we are now part of the the internet. Yeah, uh, uh, the internet isn't a bunch of computers anymore. It's a it's an interconnection mm. of of us. <laughs> yes, and we need to learn how we live in this world. We need to learn how our etiquette, how to be polite. Uh, how to interact with each other in a civil way uh, because there are so many organizations watching us <laughs> trying to understand and they know exactly how we th- how we think and feel and they want to make money from us so mm. as a as a computer scientist who does computer security m- one of my roles is to be able to to protect uh, individuals and citizens and represent them and create research yeah. which looks after them uh, as much as 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 for for the large organizations mm-hmm. so so I'm, what I'm really interested in is how cyber security became your specialism um, and I suppose the nature of the work that you are spending most of your time on at the moment I, I could see along from a long way off that this was going to be one of the greatest industries in uh, in the world. <laughs> And it took a long time to to bring people around. I proposed a program for computer security, and they said, "Show me the jobs." And I said, "I can't. I can't point to the Scotsman and say here is a job and there's a salary. I can't just now because this role really hasn't been created yet. People are doing little bits and pieces of it, but I can assure you that this is going to be the biggest industry ever." one of the most important ever, uh, the concept of firewalls is going, data is 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 now uh, key. And I could see we work very closely with industries in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. We could see that they were starting to recruit very heavily and networking. Uh, the banks were transforming themselves into tech companies. <laughs> <laughs> they were recruiting tech graduates into yeah. the banks so we can see almost to the minute where the skills are required and where the industry is moving because they will be recruiting our graduates and telling us exactly what skills that they require. Yeah. So we could see a long way off that the networking boom, uh, the plugging in of cables was moving away and it was all about making sure that firewalls were secure. Viruses were happening. Everybody had a virus in the 2000 <laughs> yeah. uh, period, my doom and so on. And you could just see that it was like the Wild West. It was like like the, the days of the transistor. The opportunities were there. People moved quickly. Companies moved quickly. They grabbed the opportunities. Uh, so we could see at that time that there was a move away from hardware towards software. So, and that has, has generally moved. So the systems that we looked at and that we knew that we were never strong on law and ethics and on, uh, uh, more, uh, corporate security and so on. We were techie geeks and, but we loved 
that. We love to do crypto and mm-hmm. firewalls and intrusion detection systems and detecting viruses and malware and looking at code and detecting code. And that's our students. Yeah. <laughs> we, we share a passion with them. Uh, and that's the other type of, of student can go and take a course that covers uh, more abstract legal, ethical sides. But we are, we knew where, where our niche was and it's ended up being a very big niche. <laughs> we could also see that uh, police forces were changing. They were moving from static forensics of examining laptops, seizing, taking back to the lab, archiving, taking a year sometimes. And then the technicians uh, would analyze and find, we could see that that was really changing. People were, starting to use MacBooks more, different operating systems, Linux servers, mm. RAID arrays, and mobile phones, <laughs> iPhones and Androids. That's a different skill. The minute you turn an, uh, an iPhone off, you've lost the evidence. So we could really see that police officers needed to be trained in how to seize uh, data properly or it would be compromised. So we worried that forensics... Uh, digital forensics at the time wasn't scientific enough. There wasn't enough due diligence in the handling and the processing and the analysis and so on. So we could see that move towards a new world. And if you can see that now police officers, the bobby and the beat, now Hmm. needs to be trained in how an iPhone works or that a computer isn't just a monitor (laughs) it's the actual processor (laughs) and there's a hard disk in there the minute you turn the computer off you've lost evidence so if we thought that if that was happening then virtually every single company every employee would really need to understand how the internet worked at Mm -hmm. least Uh, so we generally and with the support of our of my university uh, my university has never, ever said no <laughs> to anything. Was always willing to take a, a risk because I think success leads to success. If there's one thing that we can do <clears throat> is that we have a track record. And in research, you typically will get grants by saying, I really did some really good work here. It had great impact. It's helping solve this problem give me some more money and then I'll do even better the next time. (laughs) If you have a poor track record, then you will not get money. So one thing you do is you build up a reputation for doing good work. You also do not so good work (laughs) and you bury that under the carpet. But But that's what the risks are all about. Anybody in business will know you learn from your mistakes and we're good learners. We're fast movers and we know when an opportunity will, 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 will arrive. So it, uh, I think computer security was always seen and we built up a skills base for our academics. We made sure that we had core research in place because you could be a great teacher in, uh, and have great uh, programs, but uh, to be uh, world-renowned, internationally renowned, you mm. need to be showing that you're publishing papers to show that you understand the barriers and you're addressing it. So we set in place innovation. Uh, we tried to pr- uh, address fundamental problems that were happening, put the research in place so that we all we had, uh, I, I think academia is a bit like spinning plates. 
I, I don't know if you remember, but there used to be programs on the TV, used to be on virtually every Saturday, where there was this chap and he would put the plates on top of the poles and he'd spin <laughs> the plates and, and the plates were not got to fall off. I really think academia is spinning plates. <laughs> you're teaching, you're keeping your teaching up to date, you're keeping your research up to date, you're applying for grants, you're writing papers, you're talking to industry, you're talking to employers, and then you're keeping teaching going and things like that. Yeah. So it's a bit of like spinning plates and sometimes <laughs> the plates do fall. But sometimes the plates will, will, will spin very well. And, and I think it's knowing what is successful and keep doing what you do well. So I think you can, you can develop and you go too wide uh, and then you can't cover all your bases mm -hmm. and then it doesn't look good. You're not so good in certain areas. We've always known what we like and where we're comfortable uh, and and to be able to support our, our students and our research and especially uh, SMEs and, and, and businesses. So that, that's generally the way we got in and, and really we've developed our postgraduate course, GCHQ uh, accredited. So we have the opportunity to really make sure it's fit for purpose. But we make sure that we provide uh, our graduates going to the Edinburgh market. At one time, <laughs> graduates would go to London, say, uh, and then they, they, they would work there, maybe come back and so on. Uh, there's enough vibrancy in Edinburgh for every one of our graduates normally to get, uh, to get great jobs and, mm -hmm. to, and to develop. And it's a great place for international students yeah. uh, to come to. They adore the city generally <laughs> every city has problems and uh but most of our international students just adore uh living and working here mm -hmm. and you learn so much from them and computer security we just need more people smart people from all over the world yeah. uh to come here and make this their their home mm -hmm. and stay because mm -hmm. uh, i think the cities of the future will be built on uh intellect and smart people and companies will be drawn to the places in the world that have smart people and provide the environment that people want to stay and live and bring up families uh, and so on. And Edinburgh, I think, is the second best city in the world for quality of life. It's unfortunately second, but, uh, <laughs> but for, for an environment where you can walk, you can live in a city. <laughs> yeah. You can yeah. you can find a beach, you can find a hill, you can find a bike ride through uh, past the stream with a waterfall, and uh, you name it. The city has has really got it. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. <laughs> Excellent answer. I think before doing research for this <laughs> interview, I was probably. Um, a combination of naive or ignorant as to what the actual implications of cyber attacks actually are. Um, it would be great if you could give people, I suppose, a bit of a broader understanding as to what some of the potential implications actually are. Okay, so so I'll I, I give you an, ex an example. So we all use email uh, and we have been doing... So email was the, was the, was the, the, uh, the app that really... Uh, allowed the internet to scale. 
So it was one thing people had to use the internet. Uh, I remember CompuServe and AOL <laughs> and hearing modems screeching <laughs> and so on. Uh, and costing a lot of money, as I remember. But, but email was, was, the, was, the, was the app. So why is it in 2017 that I can't tell if it was you that really sent me an email this morning? If it has your email address, why is it in this technologically advanced era that I cannot tell if it was you? The second thing is I cannot tell if someone else has read that email. So if this was a private email between me and you, I cannot tell that somebody in Google Someone in my university or some evil cyber criminal has actually read uh, our emails. Someone listening on the network could have intercepted it. I cannot tell. I can tell if you send me a letter in the post. I can see that you've steamed open the letter. <laughs> and it looks like the postman has had a little look in my Amazon package, kind of. Uh, but uh, I, still, I still cannot tell. And I still cannot tell if somebody has modified what you said to me. Mm -hmm. If you say something nice, I, how do I know that somebody hasn't said, oh, well, we better not, let's change that to make it look a nasty message and so on. Mm -hmm. Let's change it so it came from this different person. So why isn't it that we, that why is it that we are at a time that we cannot tell uh, exactly those three things. And that is an infrastructure of trust. With a spamming email, I must receive a dozen spamming emails. I do follow them up, by the way. <laughs> do you really? I have a conversation with an African uh, spam person. <laughs> I actually really enjoy uh, speaking to him. That's uh, incredible. He, he sent me an email to say that I had won uh, 10... Uh, that uh, my Fatos Buchanan had died in a plane crash in Africa, uh, and it was my my relative, and he's the he's the lawyer who's dealing with it, and the nice thing is that he's going to share. I think it's twenty million, <laughs> so he's going to share twenty million US dollars with me. Uh, he'll take half. Uh, and and then I, I'll get the other half. All I have to do is to fill in my personal details, <laughs> and and I, I have Skype uh, a Skype conversation uh, with him, in uh, in an African uh, country, uh, and I communicate with him. He keeps asking me why my phone number doesn't appear on his on his number, <laughs> and it's because I'm using Skype, and obviously they can't tell, uh, but. I, I, I keep communicating with them uh, and it just shows you that, uh, that these spamming emails are be just becoming so prevalent. Uh, so I nearly was tricked by one. I had just cancelled my Netflix subscription. A Netflix sub uh, email came in and it said, uh, uh, we've, we've had a problem with your payment uh, in your Netflix. Hopefully it was a random one that had been sent to me. Please click on this link. It had all the proper Netflix logos and so on. And the link, and I clicked on the link, looked like a valid-looking domain because you, you can never be sure if they've set up another company mm. to do the subscription for them. 
you click on the link, it goes to a page that looks like Netflix, all the graphics are the same, it then asks you for your Netflix login and so on, or it could go to an Apple, uh, I think it was an Apple uh, login uh, site that it went to, but the minute you put your details in, then you've lost your username and password for your iCloud. See, if you lose that, all your passwords are stored there. If your your Google will have all your your details of all the systems that you log into, every mm-hmm. single password, and obviously you have your credit card details uh, these days. So, as long as the, the a world still exists that allows that type of crime and and exposes uh, vulnerable people to this type of uh, uh, crime, as we've seen from ransomware, the problems that that happened. Then we haven't we haven't built an internet which is fit for purpose yeah, yet. Yeah. So my our focus is to really rebuild uh, systems to to look at how our NHS should look in thirty years time, and we're not going to just shut the NHS off now, and then tomorrow we have a new NHS. <laughs> yeah. We need a track. And we need to understand the problems and what it is that people really want to do online for their health, for example, and to try and migrate and to move and to give helpful advice. Because in things like healthcare systems, large companies tend to dominate and then they will give you their solution and you're locked in. So we would like to break away to look at open systems, but always put the citizen right at the core of any system that's created and their rights uh, uh, is is fundamental. So that's our drive is to really make sure that we look after the citizen uh, we, we put in place. Uh, mechanisms that protect them but also protect the rights of society to protect itself because there are some evil people, there are evil things, bad things that go on on the internet and I think it's our role also to be able to understand how to detect these evil things and to help law enforcement and uh, and governments to, to to protect their their citizens as a as a society but some some countries some governments would like to move completely one way uh, other countries want to move the other way and give citizens complete rights and there's a there's a balance in the middle uh, and we'd be keen to really try and address that often mm-hmm. to engage and to articulate uh, the problems because a government will say we want to a backdoor in crypto and a security professional will say no that's not a good idea and the government will say well we want it and the security professionals say, no, that isn't a good idea. <laughs> and in the debate somewhere, somebody has got to put their cards on the table and actually talk a bit of tech and say, you can't do it because the software that we have doesn't have any encryption keys in it. Mm-hmm. They don't exist anywhere. Only on this machine and this machine do the encryption keys have it. I, who run WhatsApp, don't have the encryption keys. <laughs> you need to understand that we now have the opportunity for two machines, two people to talk to each other privately without anyone else in the whole world 
to be able to be involved and mathematically it is impossible to break the bond between the two people. Uh, and I think that debate hasn't happened. Uh, I did try. I went down to the House of Commons just before Christmas there for the internet privacy bill that's, that went through very quickly. <laughs> no debate. Uh, and, and I did, I did talk about Bob and Alice in the House of Commons, uh, to, to a committee. And I did talk about public key and, and crypto. And I did say that terrorists are quite, te- are extremely tech savvy and they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what to use and so on. Uh, and whatever's put in place, they will find a way around it. So I think, I think generally, uh, we've created a system, an internet that really has got up and running. And I keep saying to my students, what an opportunity you've got. We booted up the internet, we got it running, but it's a disaster. <laughs> but lots of people are using it and it's so fundamental and it's the biggest industry ever. Uh, but now you go ahead and fix it. We're going to teach you the techniques to be able to understand how you take a system from where it is now and how, where it should be. Mm-hmm. So why does a system ask me for my password? And I pass my password along the line and they store my password on another system and I can't tell how they're storing it. Why can't I just say, well, I, this is my identity? I'll give me a puzzle to solve. How tall am I? Six feet. I know that. Uh, where was I born? Falkirk and so on. So systems really need to be a bit more savvy about, about the information that they store. And, and more and more citizens should be given their own data back and their own identity back and to be able to define. So I went down to London yesterday. Uh, I, I used my wallet with my uh, EasyJet uh, booking. So I just showed my mobile phone. What wonderful. I don't have to carry bits of paper hmm. now. And it reminds me my flight, which was two and a half hours late to, to leave. <laughs> didn't, didn't predict that. But then I flashed my driving license, which is in my, my old wallet and so on. That's my ID. There you go. That's me. Hey, what? Wow. <laughs> that photo ID in a little, in a wallet is credible. Yeah. Is it really? And they're so busy. You're flashing IDs and stuff like that. And you go, what? That, that is an old 20th century method. Why can't I have an ID? A one ID that says I am who I am. When I went to vote for the Scottish, uh, <laughs> independence uh-huh. uh, election. I went in probably one of the most fundamental votes that I've ever seen in my whole life. Okay, I won't say how I voted, uh, but I wanted to vote. And I went uh, into my polling station and they said, I'm sorry. And I went to Juniper Green uh, and they said, I'm sorry, you don't exist here. I go, what? Uh, we've got you down as Leith. I go, what? <laughs> I want to vote. Please. Yeah. <laughs> I pay my taxes. This is the most fundamental election that's happened. I've listened to every single debate about it. I understand this, 
what I'm voting for here. My vote, one vote probably wouldn't have made any difference, but it was a fundamental right in this, in this world. And they said, you don't exist. And so I contacted and I phoned and I'm still in the, the polling station. My wife had already voted. And so, but I was there and I was on the line. I said, well, what's your name? Yeah, well, you exist in Leith. I don't exist in Leith. Mm-hmm. I'm a professor. I live here. I've, I've lived here. I moved from there. I've never lived in Leith. Oh, yeah. And you're 20 odd years old. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> My son lives in uh, Leith just now. He came back from America. He lives in Leith. Uh, and uh, I think you've got him. Uh, oh, oh, dear. Uh, I, I made the mistake of calling my son the same name as me. I, I give any advice to anybody not to do that. <laughs> it was a tradition in our family. My dad was called Bill, Billy William. My grandfather was also called Bill William. Uh, and we passed the name down. So my first son was always going to be called Billy, Bill, William, and so on. <laughs> so why is it a system that when you register... It takes William Buchanan and say, well, he exists in Juniper Green. Uh, let's, uh, that's obviously him. Doesn't check the age or the profile or anything mm-hmm. and moves them down to Leith. And then the, and that, that is 19th century. And I put an X in, in a box now. And we have a confusing thing of one, two, three, four, but we'll not go there. Uh, and I, I really think things like elections could be transformed through electronics, but uh, cryptography, but obviously there needs a lot more trust to be built in, into the system. Mm-hmm. So I just can't understand why in this world that that our ID, which is so fundamental to us, because we are, like it or not, we all exist. Uh, the ID is often based on a piece of knowledge, such as your mother's maiden name. These days, that can be easily discovered. So a lot of systems are flawed in terms of what they base your ID on, what football team you support, where your first school was, when you were born and so on. That might have been a secret 20 years ago, but anybody can find that out now. So in order to to transform public services and to put things back into the hands of citizens, then you really need to own your own ID, need to be comfortable with it. You need to define how your ID is used and who's allowed to use it. And too often our ID is contained in lots of different places. Why do you get asked for your email address every single time you go to the hospital and you have to write it out mm-hmm. <laughs> very carefully? Mm-hmm. Uh, why can't that be stored somewhere on your telephone number somewhere? And you don't want that to be public knowledge, but you want to be able to trust certain people to reveal certain bits of your identity. So I think public sector uh, uh, really needs to transform the the whole concept of identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, cryptography has a lot of the answers, but for some reason cryptography tends to be flawed in, in, in its approach. Mm. There tends not to be a debate. If you look at the Named Person Act in Scotland, I was involved with it when it was GERFEC, one of the worst acronyms ever. Get it right for every child, GERFEC. <laughs> it's a really wacky, uh, it's just, uh, 
you can just see it as a as a banner headline get <laughs> yeah. into Gurfik. what's that and uh the Gurfik was a fantastic thing it's really to look at the risks that were caused through um through some of not sharing information about about the risks around a child uh and and vulnerable people uh so it had great expectations i was part of lots of meetings we we put forward there was lots of uh community agencies and the nhs and and there was a real emphasis and then for some reason it lost its way and then parents said what is the named person uh, well your child has a responsible person who will look after who will look after them you know what you don't trust us to look after our kids <laughs> we know that they've got a bruise why do you need this oh we need this because because you you might be doing something bad to it. we need to share but who's the named person we can't tell you but who who, who will they be and how will they pass and when do they get sent and how do they get sent and we're not telling you you go what <laughs> this, this is our kids yeah we're responsible for them we love them and and you're saying and what it did was that they didn't inform they went quiet and they didn't allow the citizens to be part of the of the debate and this there was one example i saw uh that uh, i think a child had been sucking the thumb at, at school a little child and uh, the school i think had had reported that the child was still was sucking the thumb i mean <laughs> and lots of people <laughs> i've known that have revealed to me and there is nothing wrong with that it's a comfort blanket and mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a very natural thing and that that was reported um i don't know if it's true or not but it was reported that information would be passed on to the named person uh from the school and that really worries me because that becomes a big brother mm. society mm -hmm. that you're being watched all the time uh everything is a is every little red flag is that is that a risk do you accumulate lots of red flags and then it becomes a big risk or is every little bruise that you see in a child certainly <laughs> What I know of kids, they'll fall downstairs and they'll bash their heads against <laughs> things that they do, and uh, mm -hmm. and they're just they're just special in 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 doing. It. And the parents will always be the most trusted yeah. to look after them. And the state doesn't have a great track record in looking after uh, kids. One thing that amazes me and uh, my grandson. Uh, has a paper red book uh, that should be well known to most parents and it's the most wonderful thing you can see exactly where your child should be any given time so you don't have to go to the internet you don't have to ask you and parents are intelligent people that actually that can understand and make reasoned judgments you can see exactly where your your head's <laughs> your child's head is in is in the right size and, and so on and in Scotland, uh, we had a company, there's a company called Psychit, who have a development centre in Edinburgh. Uh, their, uh, their headquarters is in Isle of Skye. And they had this vision that they've kept with to create an electronic uh, red book for a child. 
you go, wow, that's fantastic. The citizen, for the one true piece of citizen-owned health is the Red Book because the the mother and the father will, will have it and will give it to the GP or the, the professional. It's the one, th- one, one of the best examples in healthcare of something that is truly citizen-focused that they have control and ownership of. Mm-hmm. So the natural step is to move it online uh, with electronics. So it, it remembers you, because a piece of paper won't ring you up and say your child needs immunised next week, <laughs> or you've been late for an immunisation. Uh, we'll give you one more chance, and, and then we'll, 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 we'll get a bit worried about you. And it just seemed a natural thing, and they've been at this. And they had to go all the way down to London for London to adopt it as a whole city of 8 million people, that every single child in London has an e-red book. And that was because somebody stood up and said, well, our children are our most important assets. <laughs> we need to look after them. We need to make sure that we understand and, and we're, we're making judgments and we're using data for them and we're, we're seeing where there are areas of deprivation and problems and things like that. So they went down to London, and now every child in London has an e-red book, and I don't, th- I, th- I don't think it's been adopted in, in in Scotland because I don't think anyone stood up and said Edinburgh needs e-red book. Hmm. Our kids, our kids, we've got to make sure that they grow up healthy and they're educated, and we need to look after them, and an electronic. A red book is the way that we, we, we trust the parents. But if there are problems, we have a, we have a record. And sometimes the problem might be parents. Sometimes the problem might be health. Mm. So you can see that a child hasn't been visited by a health professional and the child was at risk for two months, ring a flag and say, there's a problem here. So I think it works on both sides and that we can track. We were lucky to work with companies who who look at uh, integrated healthcare and you can see the opportunities with the cloud. You can find out if someone has been visited by someone and for how long and whether they observed uh, if there was any problems in the home environment and so on. So, so I, I think the the whole concept of identity is going to become a, a, a key part. Luckily, mm. in Scotland, we have some really great companies. We have MyCard in Edinburgh, uh, who who uh, have a very highly trusted uh, system for checking ID and continually checking it. Uh, we also have uh, companies who are citizen-focused in creating data stores that citizens own and then have what are called APIs that allow applications to dig into the into that data as, as required. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. I'm, I'm really, I suppose, interested to um, hear your thoughts on this. You've been incredibly successful in your work. You've achieved, I suppose, what many would perceive to be a level of mastery in the work that you do. Um, which kind of leads me to think that 
it's it's more than simply work or a career and is probably tied more to kind of mission and purpose. What, what do you feel the thing is that's kind of driven you to be as successful as you have been? And do you think it is linked to a, a sort of a deeper purpose? I, I think, I mean, I'm very lucky. I have a wonderful family. I live in a, in a wonderful city. <laughs> I teach and research the most wonderful area that I find interesting. I have a work-life balance that kind of works. <laughs> I'm a, I love writing. Uh, I, I, I wrote lots of books and then I wrote lots of code and I created websites <laughs> and I'm going back to writing books again because I actually found that the way that you do books is the wrong way around. You write a book and then you put, you put up the website and things like that's the wrong way. For many years, I created a website and the whole infrastructure, and I created all of the demonstrators and the, and the techniques and the videos and the lectures and so on, and then I write the book. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's the way to do it. You spend a lot of time creating the artifacts and getting and building your skills up and, and articulating and understanding. And, and once, you, once you've done a lecture a few times, you actually know what goes in and what doesn't and what the problems are and then you write the book so I've actually I've actually come to the point now and and I've got quite a few books coming up uh, and I actually really enjoy doing them now and I do them very quickly because I've already done the groundwork and and so on so I'm very lucky uh, that I actually teach and research into something that I really desperately love and 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 I've comfortable as a techie geek and I don't have to be a politician and I don't want to be a politician and I'm really switched off by politics but I'm really I'm really passionate about some of the injustices uh, and and I'm a real I hate to see people being impolite Politeness was something, and manners was something that I was brought up with, and I, 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 I want that, and everybody pe- to be respected. I, I don't like when uh, big, big companies swamp small companies. I'd, I, I like to be David uh, against Goliath. Hmm. I think if I, if I felt that I was in a privileged position. Uh, and I always felt that I had lots of resources and I had lots of research money and I had so many papers and I always got a privilege. If I want a grant, I'll get a grant. And if I want a PhD studentship, then I'll get that. To me, that doesn't work. I, I, I wouldn't want to be because you become lazy and, and you don't feel eager. And it doesn't feel good when you get something. If you feel that you're David against Goliath, then when you win, you feel good because you, you've got it probably on the back of something that you've done right, not because of the opportunity. So I, I like the gutsiness of my university. I like the gutsiness of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. I like the gutsiness of Scotland. It's a Falkirk bearing. bearing inside me and and uh, Falkirk as a football team 
didn't win all the time. <laughs> that's great. That's great. We played well. <laughs> and we won sometimes. And, uh, and I think I've always grown up with that feeling that, uh, good, uh, that uh, I tried, did better, must do better the next time. And when you don't get a grant and you just know that it's because of something else that hasn't, and because of some, something, some, uh, something, some, some privilege, something that's, that has benefited uh, at something else, you, you look your wounds and, and you move on and you try not for it to affect your staff uh, and, and make them feel difficult. You have a dream, a vision, and you crumble a bit. But in terms of people that you interface with, you yeah, let's let's be twice as strong. Let's <laughs> let's let's go out there and 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 let's let's do better the next time. Our vision, our dream, is really what we want. And if healthcare doesn't work for these people, we know that for a fact. And we're trying to improve that. If we haven't articulated what it is we're trying to do here, then we've then I've failed. Mm. <laughs> but it's not the failure of the team and so on. So I think we've always had general roadmaps to know exactly where the end result will be. Uh, and it's a long track. Impact takes 10 years mm. to come through in research. And people, when we first got into information sharing, in health, people said, Microsoft, I've done that. IBM do that. Why are you doing this? <laughs> At the time, we used to go down to London and there was an initiative called Connecting for Health. There was £15 billion invested in Connecting for Health to transform health care, just health care, in uh, the UK. And we would go along to meetings and we had a small grant. We worked with some great people in Imperial College in Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Uh, and there was Connecting for Health people there. And it almost felt that, why, why are you doing this? You have a little bits of money and you're doing RFID and for medical devices and you're creating a patient cloud that, that gives the, the data to the patient uh, and lets them control it. And defines the rights. Why, why, why are you doing that? We've got fifteen billion. Oh, don't need, don't need this at all. And the uh, connecting for health, the, the whole contract was was cancelled with zero, zero impact. If you look at the website now, it's a horrendous, horrible mess. And it just shows that you can throw money at people, mm. and lots of times it doesn't stick. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> I am keen that you give a little bit of money to, to someone and let them prove and let them show and then keep building along the way, uh, keep refining. So I, I'm a, if, if, if there's one thing that we can do is to be able to stand up for little companies, individuals, <laughs> investors invest in people. So mm. these days, the days of the 20 page business plans, and five-year projections are, are gone. Hmm. Not even Richard Branson can say that in five years his company is guaranteed to make five million. No one can say that. So the days of saying that you're a really smart person, 
you are so dedicated, this is your passion, this is where you want to be, mm-hmm. I'll give you some money. Because <laughs> uh, I believe in you, and you also have, uh, you can articulate the problem that you're trying to solve. To me, I'd put my money behind people like that than I would behind IBM or Google solving the Netscape great problem because they become big, massive entities. They, their R&D becomes R&D by committee. Mm. They're not taking risks anymore. They're not having to sell the mortgage of their house to be able to survive. They're not going round investors. They're not prototyping in their own time and weekends and, and evenings. So I think the the it's our future is really will be based on especially the risks that we now see around the EU exit. Uh, it's we've got to support our small companies. We've got to make this an attractive place mm. for entrepreneurs and innovators and tech geeks. <laughs> there was once a quote that says Edinburgh is a great place because it's a place. That that geeks and people with money can share, <laughs> and want to be a place that they both want to live. And to me, that Strangler—it's uh, not a place of money, and it is, and it's not a place of lots of geeks sitting in cafes with their laptops. <laughs> it's a place that they both want to exist in, and that provides them with the same quality of life. That they want for their their kids, and and I, I think that's that's special. I've got a lot of uh, uh, I, I think the way that London does things is is quite amazing. We've always found by going down to London, there's always been somebody that's willing to take a risk, that has a vision, that has the support. And in London, you'll get rally around, you'll get enough support. They know that the next great thing idea needs to be born in their city that hmm. needs to be part because they, they they grow companies and and they invest and and as the big companies become bloated mm-hmm. or they get taken over or they 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 die and then new companies come along hmm. if you don't have those new companies you don't have an economy you don't have a healthcare system anymore so i think innovation has got to be the number one uh, thing and it's good quality jobs. It's high quality. Uh, there's education, and Edinburgh really has all those attributes. I think it's the most educated city in the whole of the UK. Fifty-four mm-hmm. <laughs> percent have uh, have a, a degree or above, but it has a problem. It has problems in the outskirts, and Edinburgh needs to understand there is a city for all, and that and that while it grows. Its economy, uh, it, it needs to understand what are the problems in certain areas of Edinburgh mm-hmm. and to address them. I'd certainly like to see more of an approach around economic development based on cities uh, rather than countries, say, mm-hmm. because the ecosystem of a city should be self sustaining. Lynlithgow, even Falkirk, uh, towns around Edinburgh thrive on Edinburgh uh, and it's important that the city thrives it's important that Glasgow thrives and Dundee and Aberdeen, our ecosystem is increasingly based around a city and I'd love to see our city leaders take 
ownership. And I'm so so pleased that, that we're seeing the city deal happening where there'll be a lot of money invested in, in innovation. And I just hope none of it is wasted. Every single pound goes yeah. to to economic development and addressing the problems that Edinburgh has. No city is ever is ever perfect in, yeah. in any way, and huh. it will have its problems. But it's a relatively safe city. Uh, it's mm-hmm. an educated, cultured city. It's a confident city, and it's one that that you never find a problem in inviting people to. You want a taxi to the station? No, no, I walk. <laughs> no, no, it's yeah. raining. No, no, I walk. <laughs> and and that's 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 special. N- never for one minute has Edinburgh disappointed us. Yeah. And to to go to my university uh, to be to be based up at Craig Locker one minute, which was the um, the place that that Wilfred Owen uh, frequented, and the beauty of Craig Locker is wonderful. But to be to walk through John Napier's tower every day of the working week is just a just a, a privilege to know that that intellect was there and that, that Edinburgh was known across the world mm-hmm. for showing people how education could uh, uh, build an economy and help and support and to show that there wasn't barriers. Uh, there uh, to it is is something that that I think is fairly unique about the city. It's not too big, mm-hmm. not too small, <laughs> just about right. And everywhere I look, there's for sales, there's sold signs, there's building of new houses, there's building of businesses, and so on. And I really just hope that our leaders. It was once there was once going to be a motorway right through the grass market. And right past Hollywood, really? <laughs> they, they said we need a motorway like Glasgow. That's great. We'll put it right, right past the grass, oh the, not the grass market, the, the meadows. Sorry, the meadows, we'll put, <laughs> that would be strange. We'll put it through the meadows, a big motorway, and we'll, we'll just get rid of the meadows. We don't need parks and things like that anymore. And we'll put it right along Hollywood, and we'll have a big motorway, and, and that will solve the problems. And good on Edinburgh. <laughs> the they didn't. They didn't do anything, and I think that's something that Edinburgh has done well. In Glasgow, there was all these eager people to change and to transform with great intentions that kind of got lost along the way. But they said we need to get rid of the slums and we need to knock down uh, tenements and so on. And they went ahead and they did it, and it wasn't successful. At Edinburgh, they kind of hummed and they hawed, and oh, let's yeah, do it, yeah, let's have another committee, and let's have another committee. So I think Edinburgh benefited from the lack of action, but I really hope now that, that the leaders of Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and especially the, the civic community and the businesses in Edinburgh, take ownership of it and... We have great innovation centres in Edinburgh. We have great universities. We have health. We have some of the best medicine in the whole world. We have finance. We have a, an ecosystem that can be self-sustaining, but it does need the big markets of the world. It does. When you innovate in Edinburgh, you can you can prototype and you can test it here. We worked with Police Scotland to do some of our, our, our digital forensics work. 
but we knew that once it was successful here, we had to go to London to work with law enforcement agencies there and and into the US. So I think as an ecosystem, it works here. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to break down barriers between for SMEs and innovators into the public sector more. And it should be by default that the public sector should be aiming to to disrupt, to change existing ways, uh, to to not take the status quo ever <laughs> as the right way, yeah. to allow ideas to foster, to allow people that take risks to be supported no matter what level they're at. Mm -hmm. uh, innovation will come from the lowest level that you might find, the most inexperienced person. I love listening to kids on, on trains. Uh, I was on a train yesterday and a child said, why, why, why don't uh, gingerbread my, men have ears? And he was eating a gingerbread man. And he go, wow. <laughs> and the mum was trying to explain <laughs> why gingerbread men <laughs> didn't have ears. Why is the, why is, and he just kept asking, how are all the food in the world made? And she just kept answering. It was wonderful. She, well, uh, there's lots of different foods, and it's it's made in lots of different ways. Ask me about different types of food, and I'll tell you how it's made. And I got, I have real faith in in, in parenthood and families. When a a mother on a on a busy train going to stands to the airport is quite willing to discuss as an as a, as a as a peer with a child. <laughs> <laughs> about whether gingerbread men, why they don't have ears. And she didn't explain it because of the mold and things like that. And, and, and then she, and then she was quite willing to debate with them. She wanted to keep him from falling asleep actually, but he just kept incessantly asking questions for her. And she kept answering in a calm, considerate, uh, tone. And I think we kind of lose that, that spirit. Of asking questions, for some reason we get it beaten out of us. We we do ciphers for kids, and they adore them. The first time we did it, we were so worried. We give them a Caesar cipher, Caesar cipher, one of the first ciphers. You move the letters of the alphabet by a certain amount, and then you it's easily crackable. There's only twenty five codes and so on. Uh, but humans are very good at at, uh, at solving it. So we did our first event with kids. And we were so worried because it was like maths and difficult things while we were playing games in other workshops and really fun and uh, let's do an internet-enabled fridge and stuff like that. We were giving them, and it wasn't even on a computer, it was it was on bits of paper. And we had them on desk and like, this is going to be a complete and absolute disaster. And they <laughs> loved it, they adored it. And the school has came back every single year since and they actually talk about the time and now we do it in more of a scale and we have lots of different codes we have one called a rail code you you write the you have three rails say you write the cipher across the rails in a zigzag zigzag fashion and you read the cipher back again kids get it <laughs> you don't have to tell 
the, the kids, and especially when they work in teams, especially girls, for some reason, are really good at working together on ciphers and very diligent and hardworking. The boys are on to challenge 15 and trying to hack the system. The girls are saying, can we move on to the next challenge? You see the difference in the approach uh, from them. But uh, they have an actual ability. There was one chap we saw, and we gave him a real code, which is quite a complex thing to solve. Mm-hmm. And he said the answer almost instantly. And we said, how did you do that? I don't know. And we give him another one. And he goes, that's the answer. Honestly, how did you do that? I don't know. I look at it <laughs> and I can tell. And I go, wow. <laughs> so we, so I, when we crack ciphers, uh, our students ask, what's the method I should use here? And I go, well, work it out yourself. And whatever you're comfortable with, whether it's, Long, hmm. do that. Do it that way, because that's the way that you solve. And you find most many jobs that we're moving towards are all about problem solving and taking complex problems and trying to find solutions for them. So I, I think sometimes we lose our childish creativity mm-hmm. that way. Why? Why is the sky blue? Why does it rain and then it's sunshine? <laughs> Yeah, how did how did that happen? <laughs> uh, when I came here, it was a deluge, yeah. and then when I appeared at the door, it was sunshine. <laughs> Why does that? How does that happen? Uh, the weather forecast told me that, but why did it do that? And why at that specific time? Just because there's a low pressure in Ireland? Honestly, why? Why, yeah. why, why did it do that? So I, th- I think we, we we just need to probably reconnect with our childlike uh, creativity. Yeah. You'll see some of the best paintings and drawings that you'll ever get are done by children. They have a fun, they know how to abstract and simplify things. That's daddy. Because <laughs> he, he has a pipe mm. in his mouth or he has a hat on. And uh, so I think if there was there was more creativity... And in in creating systems and more disruption and starting from fresh and looking at it as a whole and from the outside and knowing where you're going, then I think our our systems would be much better uh, designed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How would you like to be remembered? What would you like your legacy to be? That's 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 difficult. I mean, in the best. In the best way, we'd, we'd, we'd like to create a blueprint for health and social care in, in the UK. <laughs> That's 10, 20, 30, 100 years in the future. We've set in motion some things that we think is the right way. Data sharing is one of the most fundamental problems in many of our public sector areas. If you have a large database which stores all the information your tax man can be looking at your health record and your GP can look at your tax returns. That's a nightmare scenario for us. So our research has put in place ways that we can actually assess risks, identify them. We make sure that data is protected and it's credible. Uh, And then we look at how we can actually share information uh, on different types of events and understanding there are different roles involved because really you can map this complex infrastructure and actually define that uh, uh, 
a clinician who's involved with a patient should have certain rights, but a clinician from another hospital has different rights. So just because you log in as a clinician doesn't give you rights exactly to the to the patient records. Mm-hmm. In fact, should fundamentally the patient own the data? Um, so we've seen, I mean, I observed the healthcare system from afar with my mother and father-in-law and and the route they took, took through, amazing professionals, uh, but really some of the processes involved really weren't the best and we never felt that we were part of of their treatment at all. We'd run home from the hospital and check up online for a certain medication that they had been given because we knew that my mum-in-law was, was, was highly allergic to penicillin and we'd run home and, and, and look up the medication. So we never really felt uh, part of that and, and some of the things we've tried to put in place try to address some of the problems to make sure that the patient pathway is understood and the, and the risks that are involved. Mm-hmm. And like it or not, uh, uh, you uh, citizens, families become 24-7 carers yeah. and have as much right to know that, that, that something has happened uh, than, than anyone else and to be able to understand what the implications are uh, and so on. So as a legacy, I'd be keen that our three amazing spin-out companies became the next Skyscanner <laughs> and become enormously successful and showcase that Edinburgh has been an amazing incubator place for them and has given them the best start in life without ever getting in the way and given them the, the, the people that they need for the business uh, and the support uh, but giving them the freedom to to grow uh, to wherever they have. And Skyscanner is just such an inspirational company, continues to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are so many companies in code base, Mm -hmm. that kind of gutsy, (laughs) they they call it a warrior spirit in Scotland. And I I, I get that. We're kind of like a warrior. And I think if you lose that spirit, then then you're not taking it. Everything's becoming A to B, and and it's all obvious. So, so I think for the spinets to become successful, and for some of our research, for our, our things in law enforcement, we hope that some of the things we can do can catch bad people. So, some of the things we did in digital forensics is that uh, we can actually detect when there is bad contraband uh, around, many hundreds of times faster than existing tools that there are on the market. Uh, we hope that our companies become extremely successful and that some of our research really has that strong impact. But but to to help in some way to improve health and social care is is something that, that I think as a country uh, we face. Mm-hmm. How we can make sure that there isn't a Windows XP <laughs> machine sitting on a desktop in the Highlands somewhere that breaks, brings down the NHS because it has a bit of ransomware. <laughs> we need to understand that we now have a critical infrastructure and the critical infrastructure is the internet and the public sector, public services that we're creating. Fantastic. Great answer.
Bill, it's been a genuine um, honour speaking to you. I've absolutely loved it. Um, some incredible insights and just, uh, yeah, truly inspirational. Good. Thank you. So, some of the things you said about Edinburgh as well, just... Okay. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, good. Bill, thank you so yeah. much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and find us on social media and leave us a review on iTunes. Many thanks. <laughs>